You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation, and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs, and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success, and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, today, Lloyd, our show is about conflict-related sexual violence. And in fact, that's the name of this book, Conflict-Related Sexual Violence, International Law and Local Responses. And this is written by two wonderful professors who are great researchers in the area of gender violence and sexual violence. And let me tell you a little bit about each one of them. Uh, First, we have Susan Dewey and... Boy, I'll tell you, both of these women have such a, a an incredible background. And um, Susan Dewey is a cultural anthropologist currently in the stages of two research projects that explore aspects of feminine labor in two different uh, cultural contexts. The first, which commenced with her 2011 field book, Exploring the Lives and Far-Reaching Economic and Social Networks of Women Market traders in the Pacific island of Fiji, beautiful Fiji. Her other project is based in Denver, Colorado, and engages law enforcement officers, sex workers, and social service providers regarding their perceptions of what constitutes force and coercion with respect to sex work. And then she is also the co-author of several books, and let me just name a couple of them, and then we're going to go back to the one that she's done with Tanya. But she is also the author of um, On Love, Motherhood, and Sex Work in a Rust Belt Town. Another one that she's done is In Hollow Bodies, Institutional Responses to Sex Trafficking in Armenia, Bosnia, and India. And there she highlights the nuanced nature of sex trafficking as a social justice issue. And another book she's written is Making Miss India, Miss World, Constructing Gender, Power, and Nation in Post-Liberation India. And this examines urban Indian perceptions of feminine beauty in the wake of dramatic socioeconomic changes. So that's uh, there's a lot more to talk about with her, but I just really need to talk a little bit about Tanya so we can get into the meat of this. But Tanya St. Germain is her co-author on this book, Conflict-Related Sexual Violence. And she is an adjunct professor at the University of Wyoming and the former director of the Gender Studies Program at Eastern Oregon University. And she has edited two special issue journals, Sexual Violence and Armed Conflict, Gender, Society, and, and State. And then she has another one, Assessing the Impact of International Human Rhetoric, on African lives and the gender, the case of gender-based violence. So these women have done tremendous work, and um, they have, uh, you know, written this book and co- co-authored and co-edited this book. So before we go any further, I want to make sure that we welcome you both, and we can start talking about this great book. 
So uh, thank you, Susan and Tanya, for joining me. Thank you. Well, let's start out here with Susan. Um, Susan, in this book that you co-edited with Tanya, there is a volume of nine original pieces of research that cover a whole array of cultural and geographical contexts. And you've talked about such places as Sierra Leone, Liberia, Haiti, Afghanistan, Colombia. Why is conflict-related sexual violence such a globally pervasive and enduring social phenomena? Conflict-related sexual violence, or rape during wartime, permeates even the earliest accounts of war with disturbing frequency. This is apparent in epics from very different cultures. In Homer's The Odyssey, Cassandra, the daughter of the king and queen of Troy, is raped and taken across enemy lines during the sacking of Troy. One of the central threads in the Hindu epic Ramayana revolves around the kidnap and subsequent rescue of the goddess Sita by her husband. The implication that her kidnapper may have raped her provides a strong narrative force throughout the epic. 2,000 years later, conflict-related sexual violence remains a powerfully evocative topic. North American and Western European newspaper reporters now routinely incorporate stories about sexual and gender-based violence and conflict zones. And the large-scale expansion of international legal institutions, such as the International Criminal Court, aims to ensure accountability for perpetrators. There are many reasons for the globally pervasive and enduring nature of conflict-related sexual violence, but foremost among these is women's universally marginalized status. Throughout the world, including the United States, women are much less likely than men to play active decision-making roles in governance and policymaking, and still earn less or have less stable jobs than their male counterparts. In situations of conflict-related instability, this situation only worsens, rendering women particularly vulnerable to violence as non-combatants. This is compounded by the reality that women's and girls' sexualities constitute a point of tension throughout the world. In fact, one of the arguments against women in the U.S. Army filling active combat roles is that they face a higher likelihood of being raped by enemy forces as a means to humiliate their male co-combatants. Indeed, in almost every instance in which it is documented in our book, conflict-related sexual violence has a unique power to destroy families and communities through shame and stigma. Taken together, these help to explain its enduring and globally pervasive nature. Yeah, when you were talking about women in the military, we've we've heard on the news recently about all of the um, prosecutions of these military guys who've raped their own trainees. So, I mean, we're seeing this not only with what the fear is about the enemy raping our our military people, our military women, but we have this happening within our own military right now. So um, it it is really unfortunate. Thank God you're doing the research that you're doing to bring this into the light. Susan, you know, let's go a little bit further. In your book, you talk about three areas, key areas of analysis with respect to conflict-related violence. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what they are and um, why did you choose those? We wanted to capture the complexity and depth of this topic without giving way to sensationalism. As much as we both appreciate the increased newspaper coverage of conflict-related sexual violence, Photographs of sexual and gender-based violence survivors from combat zones throughout the world have now become standard fodder in North American and Western European news media. In fact, our book, our book opens with descriptions of such images of women shielding their faces in pain or in expressions of shame. We know that sexual violence is, 
as one of our volume's contributors observes, nothing new. And yet such sensationalized images and language does a real disservice to the issue. When, for example, elements of the news media refer to the Democratic Republic of Congo as the rape capital of the world, there is an element of othering that diminishes the complex ways in which survivors make sense of their trauma and begin to forge new lives for themselves and their families. We chose the three themes as a way to understand the totality of experiences that surround international responses to conflict-related sexual violence, which is always a very local and personal experience. Exactly. Tanya, um, in the introduction of your book, um, you provide an overview of international law as it applies to conflict-related sexual violence. And it, 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 uh, it comes from the Geneva Convention and more recent variations. So could you tell us a little bit about how far the international community has come in responding to these conflict-related sexual violence issues? Sure. You know, I think the easiest way to understand this is to look at the difference between the law as written and the law as enforced. And, um, you know, since we had the international criminal tribunals in Rwanda and um, Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, and with the initiation of the International Criminal Court through the Rome Statute in 1998 and its beginnings in 2002, um, we've seen tremendous advances in terms of how the law is written. So we have um, incorporated into these international statutes and in the adjudication of cases uh, many of the wonderful things that the rape law reform movement of the 70s and on through to today um, have made for women in general in terms of sexual violence. The problem occurs in the enforcement. Um, one of the interesting stories about enforcement came in Rwanda where the only woman justice called upon the prosecutors at the time to actually examine the, investigate and examine the witnesses for sexual violence because no indictments had been made mm. and invited them to go back and um, include sexual violence, which was really the beginning of um, the, the changes that were made um, in terms of statute. Ironically, just a few weeks ago, um, within the ICC's prosecution of Lubanga, who is uh, one of the men accused of um, um, indoctrinating women into um, sexual slavery through um, the violence there, also was not in indicted. Mm. So within the 10 years, I, mean, I think that's a really good example, within the 10 years from the institution of the ICC to this year, still remains the problem of having the application of these very fine laws um, make a difference. So in that regard, I think there's uh, institutionalized uh, sexism and sexual uh, norms about masculinity that pervade the enforcement uh, arms. And it doesn't matter whether it's the ICC or the various tribunals, as the book identifies, Sierra Leone, um, uh, and the work of um, people in Haiti, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so so basically, you can have laws on the books, but if everybody else ignores them and there's no enforcement, it, there's really no progress. 
but what are some of the key areas in which the international community really could prevent and respond to sexual violence in post-conflict zones? How, what, what is your suggestion? Well, you know, that's complicated because one of the things that we argue in, in the book and, and the reason we chose the um, articles that we did was that there is no one universal approach to solving these problems that, you know, again, if I were to, to condense it down into one concept, we need to listen to the victims. We need to understand what the survivors have to say and what they consider justice. And when you take a universalized approach that's um, put forward in international humanitarian law, um, that becomes a, a sort of a one right way to justice. And that one right way has become uh, prosecution. So, for example, one of the problems, I'll give an example. One of the problems with prosecution as the only way to justice um, is that the, um, oh gosh, I just lost my train of thought, sorry. Yeah, when we're, we're talking about that, that um, in enforcement and criminal prosecution, is okay, the, yeah, that there is other ways, yeah. Right, got it. Um, so in Rwanda, the um, what happened, what happened in that particular tribunal, was as I described, there weren't indictments. When the indictments were made, they were selected by the prosecutor in terms of um, obtaining a conviction. So imagine that you had upwards to two hundred and fifty thousand to five hundred thousand women raped in that genocide. Um, prosecutors are selecting cases, so you have sort of that funnel effect um, with the, the soul, and this is, this is their job. I mean, this isn't a criticism, it's a fact, it's a contextual fact, with the sole purpose of winning a conviction. So how do you select a good victim? How do you select a good witness? Do they fit a particular narrative? Are they virginal? Are they... Are they chaste? Do they, are they young? Are they unused? Et cetera, et cetera. And so all of those, those issues that go into the rape narrative um, come to, into play. And um, so there's a lot of complaints about how those, are, how those cases are selected. And then in terms of justice for victims, the reason I, I chose that example is because uh, of the way the international system works, Obviously, the uh, defendants enjoy all of the protections of being incarcerated within that system, which included, if they were exposed to HIV, the proper medications. The women who were the survivors who were potentially not selected for prosecution, of which there were many, and even some that were, were not provided with medications for the mm. HIV that they had been infected with right. by the alleged perpetrators. Wow. So you can, I mean, just, you know, as a person hearing that story, you can imagine the, the incredible injustice of a situation like that. And this goes into really one of those larger administrative institutional issues of where do you send the money? Where do you spend the money? If you're an institution of, high, of uh, justice, you spend the money on prosecutions. That's your job. You don't necessarily spend the bulk of your money on assisting the victims. There are a number of good things that happen on the books. Again, you know, that if you read the, the work of these tribunals of what they're supposed to do, 
and how they're supposed to help victims who are often frightened and, and afraid of reprisals if they do um, testify. Yet many of the things that should happen don't. These are issues of resources, of capacity, and so on and so forth. So again, we're into that problem of many, many good advancements made, many, many good intentions, yet on the, the you know, applications level, things aren't happening for the, for the survivors. Mm. We are speaking today with Susan Dewey, Professor Susan Dewey and Professor Tanya St. Germain, and they are co-authors and co-editors of this new book called Conflict-Related Sexual Violence, International Law, Local Responses, and it's a, a group of wonderful uh, pieces that, that go in and delve in this really complex problem. Susan, your book presents an interesting, albeit cautionary, argument about the incorporation of legal and policy-related best practices. Now, these were developed by North American and Western European feminists and, and rape law reform movements. So wh- what are some of the potential problems with co- trying to import these, quote, best practices um, all over the world? It's important to acknowledge, first off, that feminist scholarship, jurisprudence, and activism made significant contributions to the shape of international criminal practice in the form of special courts and criminal tribunals in the 1990s, um, specifically for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. However, feminist scholars continue to debate the nature of the North American and Western European rape law reform movements influence on the Rome Statute, the authorizing law that's used to prosecute conflict-related sexual violence at the International Criminal Court. The emergence of best practices, despite their good intentions, include the sort of pro-prosecution approach that Tonia just described. Best practices, as we refer to them in our book, are recommended global solutions to what are inevitably local problems that are frequently couched in human rights discourses that are presumed universally relevant, yet are almost exclusively originated and disseminated by individuals in a privileged position vis-a-vis the intended beneficiaries of such discourses practice. We see that in the United States, where feminist legal scholarship has begun to challenge this pro-prosecution approach by arguing that these reforms have not been successful in the U.S., Um, Nonetheless, this prosecution-oriented approach remains popular amongst the populace, the prosecutors, and the jurists that are involved with the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, as well as the International Criminal Court. In fact, many of these individuals received their appointments due to their involvement with the legal rape reform movement and who secured this approach in the case law, procedural law, and the administrative court procedures surrounding victim witnesses of wartime sexual violence. We make the argument throughout our book that exporting flawed solutions that have proven not to work in the United States and in the broader North American criminal justice system raises serious ethical and human rights concerns regarding conflict-related sexual violence a great deal of which takes place in communities outside the North American ideological purview. It's it's such a problem. You know, for me as one who who many years ago worked in the DA's office and for me now who is more into 
kind of hoping for restorative justice, kind of like a, a higher level. It just seems to me that these women who have been so so tortured and and so hurt physically and mentally and emotionally that that they need to be heard. They need to be heard. They need to be healed and physically and emotionally. What is being done to do that, Tanya? Um, well, as I was saying, there's a lot of effort that's made within that international um, humanitarian law world, but there, um, you know, you, you bring up your, your work with the DA's office, and, you know, I have to say, there you're dealing with people who have created hierarchies of crimes. I mean, that's one of the ways that lawyers understand criminal law. So, for example, you have um, homicide, which, of course, is perceived as um, the most intense offensive crime, and so uh, lawyers who are um, achieving at that level and, and adjudicating cases at that level are considered to, to be the, the top. It's the same in the international um, in the international arena. So um, men who are uh, tortured and survive, uh, and also, of course, people who don't survive, you know, those issues become the top issue. If you are a woman and you have survived sexual violence, sexual torture, it's perceived as marginalized, as a lower status. It's, it's, it's confused by the people who themselves are involved in uh, trying to create justice. And um, the problem is we have um, a system that's attempting to do the best that it can within a particular context, but the, the reality for the people who have survived is that they are not being heard. Um, this was a tension that was always at play in the rape reform movement in the United States between rape service providers and prosecutors. Um, the service providers have always attempted to be the voice for the victim and work to include their perspectives and protections for them. And in many cases, there have been a lot of advancements, again, um, in the law as written. But it's very difficult to get a... The, the cultural change that is necessary in terms of um, helping people to understand how to actually enforce the law in an equitable way. It involves a whole lot of understanding of how privilege operates, of how gender discrimination has operated within cultures. And, you know, this is why we argue that this imposition of a, another model um, often can create more injustice than it actually even, uh, you know, while its intentions are good and, and, and seeking to do right uh, by the women who survived. So, Susan, you know, you, your book advocates for the incorporation of tr transactional feminist practices into international humanitarian law. So tell us, you know, how would that look, what might that look like? First and foremost, it would acknowledge the limitations of both a prosecution-intensive approach to ending conflict-related sexual violence and focus on respecting local meanings of justice. Yet because women are often a doubly oppressed population that is disadvantaged by both their local cultural norms 
and the international legal framework in its current form, it can be difficult to create community-based models of accountability in which perpetrators will be brought to justice, whatever that means in a particular cultural context. We believe that feminist scholarship is in a place to move the international human rights policy and international criminal law in a new direction, both methodologically and substantively. However, the first step involves a clear acknowledgement that we have a very long way to go toward actively including women in the processes of restorative justice. So why don't you guys, well, I guess Tanya or, or Susan, you can maybe explain what you mean by transactional feminist practices for those people who are listening who don't really understand what you're talking about at the, at the deepest level. Absolutely. Tonya, would you like to respond? Uh, sure. It's, it's transnational. And transnational is uh, um, a theory that developed um, that says that um, it's the heightened interconnectivity between people um, and their economic and um, political uh, connections really go beyond boundaries, go beyond national boundaries. Um, most people would be familiar with this in terms of the world globalization, right, which is the economic um, experience of that particular theory, right, where you have corporations that are saying, um, we're going to go and find labor uh, that's most effective for our company, irrespective of borders, right, right, and, right. and so on. Mm-hmm. So when you're applying this to feminism, right, it's really a critique. It's really a, a transnational feminism is really challenging that concept of globalization, this, this universal approach to justice, right, the universal approach to business, whatever it is, by looking at the things that feminism always looks at and always calls, people to, calls people's attention to, gender, race, sexuality, economics, exploitation, and so forth, and they put it in, into a context and they question the kinds of um, uh, practices that grow out of those and also, you know, simple questions like who benefits and who loses when we're um, making those kinds of decisions and so forth. So, you know, when we're dealing with, um, when we're dealing with issues of international humanitarian law, you know, these are so well-grounded in, you know, concepts like rule of law that they are challenging and, I think, opening new ways, just as you were saying, um, Mari, you know, opening new ways for people to rethink how the law should operate so that justice is something that is um, equitable and doesn't make invisible, uh, frankly, the experience of half the human race. Exactly. Well, that's a perfect way to end. We are out of time. So I just want to mention your book again, Conflict-Related Sexual Violence, and people can go to K, like KISS, P, books.com. Thank you both so much, Susan and Tanya. You've been terrific. And we hope uh, we wish you the best with your book. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, home, uh, I mean, host of Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thank you.